The following audio is from LifePoint Church, located in O'Fallon, Missouri. For more information about LifePoint Church, visit us online at thelifepointconnection.com. Jumping in with James, back to James, and we've talked a little bit about who James is, why this is so particular, but I want to make sure we're feeling who he is before we necessarily read what he writes, because it helps us have a lens of understanding that might be missing if we just jump right into the text that we're going to talk about today. Now, James was the brother of Jesus, his little brother. I don't know about you. Maybe you've had siblings, maybe you haven't. But how hard would it be to have Jesus as your brother? How hard would it be to know that no matter what, for the entirety of your life, you're never going to be the person that isn't getting in trouble? Everything he does is perfect. Now, the Bible tells us that there were a lot of miracles we never saw that Jesus did. In fact, the Bible would tell us that all the books of the world could not contain what he did while he was here. Now, I don't know about you, but I have to believe myself that Jesus, being God and man and also a sibling, an older brother, probably was not unaware of the fact that he had some abilities that his siblings did not. Has anyone here ever had an older brother or sister? Most of you. I'm the oldest. I'm the oldest of my four siblings. I'm the oldest of 29 grandchildren. I have always picked on people below me. (laughs) God forgave me. It's part of the service. We'll get there. Um, How often have you seen your older sibling do something and you're like, that is not fair. Less hands, but still several hands went up. Imagine being, being James in this environment. Now, James doesn't believe. We've already talked about that. He doesn't believe what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I am the Savior of the world. I am the God from heaven. I am the one, the Messiah. No, you're not. And he died. See, I told you. Three days later, he's back. Problem. He wasn't making it up. Even death can't keep my brother down. If we get into that place, we can start to appreciate what James is sharing with us as he writes this letter. You see, he went from a place of unbelief to a very fixed place of belief in who Jesus Christ was. And he refers to him as Jesus Christ the Lord. Now imagine what it is to call your brother Lord. That's different. That's entirely different. But there's some other things about James we should be aware of. He was called James the Just because he was very firm in his position. He was called Old Camel Knees. He prayed so much his knees were deformed. What an example. That began after Jesus left. That began when the work of Jesus Christ through his salvation, his resurrection, proved to James and the world that he was who he said he was. That Jesus is the Jesus that we're here to proclaim today. That is our Savior. That is the one who died on the cross and rose again. James says what James says with that heart in mind. He's not meaning to be harsh, though he's often called harsh. Luther actually was against this book being in the Bible because it was so harsh. 
Now, that should surprise you if you know much about Luther, because if you did in today's world, we wouldn't invite him over for lunch. Our, uh, our kids would not hang out with the guy. He was pretty rough. But the reality is, the reason for this that we have to remember is that this is the Bible, and the Bible knows us. The Bible knows us. So as we read the book of James, this letter to the dispersed believers that are there, it's one of the earliest pieces of the entire New Testament. It knows us. That's why it's hard. He starts out with some pretty uh, simple things in his letter. It doesn't have chapter breaks. We'll see that in a second. But, you know, consider trials a good thing. Be happy in being poor. Don't get angry. Maybe a hard one. We talked about it with anger and we talked about it a little bit. He's going to get into it in the coming chapters. Control your tongue. That's chapter one. That's James just starting. Man, this guy is not very friendly. He's, he's kind of prickly. He's kind of hard to be around. That's not it at all. He watched his brother deal with the religious people of his day, the wealthy people of his day, the people in that time who continually, continually pushed and tried to prevent the ministry of Jesus from going forward. And he saw the graciousness of his brother. And he's pleading with the dispersed church, the Jews of that day, please understand this is what it looks like. I had a firsthand account. I watched the one who is the savior of the world. And here is how he would ask you to behave. So today we're actually going to start in James chapter 1, verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious... It does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Worthless. He's not mincing words. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. James 2.1, my brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. He's continuing a thought. The reality here is that he needs us to see that this is an action motivated by love in our relationships with one another. And the reason for this call, this command, show no partiality is because it doesn't fit with the glory of Christ. The glory of Christ is in our midst. My life group that we have on Wednesday nights, we've been talking about the concept of what it is to be a church. And one of the questions we asked a couple weeks ago is, how does it change your perspective on Sunday morning if you come to church with the anticipation that Jesus is here? What would it look like if you knew that on this row right here next Sunday, Jesus in the flesh would be sitting there? Would it change things for you? It would excite me on a different level. If I'm honest, I would be absolutely blown away. How terrible for me as a pastor to have to say that. But the reality is, how quickly do we forget that when we are gathered with our brothers and sisters, he is here? How amazing of a privilege to know that the glory of Jesus Christ is in our midst 
We are his image bearers. That's what James is trying to push out there. He's telling them, don't show partiality. Jesus didn't. He didn't hang on the cross and say, all right, give me my checklist. They're good. Nope, not them. Yep. Nope. Ah, gosh, did you see their shoes? That was not how it worked. That's why it's so important. He says, show no partiality. That's a command. It's not a question for us to consider. And he's not saying something new to the believers of that day. He's actually just referring to the word of God. Leviticus 19.15. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. Romans 2 verse 11. For God shows no partiality. Pretty hard to understand any argument against it when it's said that plainly right there. You could also go to Deuteronomy 1.17 or 16.19 or Proverbs 24.23 or Ephesians 6.9. God is clear when we're gathered... There is no room for favoritism or partiality. He does not tolerate it. It is not okay. It is not something he is all right with. He's stressing this before he gets into this other portion of his example. James has a tendency to teach the same way Jesus did. wonder why that is. He's presenting the reality. Then he's going to go to kind of a parable. And then he's going to pull the truth out of the parable for us as we move along. Now, what he's not talking about, just to be clear, is he's not talking about showing honor to another person. He's not talking about showing respect to somebody. If I tell a child, get up, let this older person have your seat, I am not running astray from this command. That deference is directly from the Bible. Now, it's lost mostly in culture today for us to actually honor the older people. It is actually lost for us to defer our wants and desires to other people. That's another sermon altogether. But the reality is, if you turn just a few pages, you would see the Apostle Peter writing about giving respect where respect is due. It's a reality. That's not what he's saying. But what he is saying is that when we interact with each other, we cannot value humans differently. Does anybody ever see this happen? Do you ever see this in our world today? I would argue, unfortunately, it's as prevalent in the world as it is in the church. We could go there. We're not going to go and look at it directly. But we see in our Savior the example. And what he shows us in the example is that Jesus is in the midst of the temple. And he sees a woman who is bent over. And the appropriate way to understand that is she is so bent over that she is looking at her ankles. And she's trying to move. Her hair is dragging the ground. The Bible says it like this. And Jesus noticed her. One person. It wasn't that she was the only person. It was that he sees with the appropriate lens. And he had mercy and compassion on her. And he asked us to do the same that's why James is so adamant around this. And now when we move to James verses 2, 2 through 4. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, and you say, sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with 
evil thoughts? Does that sting a little bit? How often do we look at people and and evaluate and value our interactions and our relationships based on appearance? How often do we want to say things like, yeah, man, they look kind of needy. I don't have energy to deal with the dirty. What does it look like in the world when we watch? I interacted business in a lot of different ways. One of those ways that is actually taught as a fundamental principle is that the closer you get to the wealthy, your proximity determines your trajectory to success. That is the exact opposite of Jesus and his way for us. We don't need to get proximity to the wealthy. We have the power of the living God inside us through the work of the Holy Spirit because of the risen Jesus, our Savior. We are the people who should be getting others in proximity to us so that they can experience his glory. How incredible would that be if by interacting with you, the reality of their trajectory is completely changed and instead of going to hell forever, they're on their way to heaven. How incredible would that be? That's what we're talking about. So I want you to remember this thought as we continue to work through this. Our eyes should not determine our behavior. Our eyes should not determine our behavior. This is beautifully portrayed in the anointing of King David. 1 Samuel 16, 7. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Samuel saw what men want to see in a leader. Here stands David's brothers, tall, handsome, dressed better than the shepherd for sure, maybe looking like nobility. God demands something different. 1 Samuel 16, verse 11, the other side of the conversation. Then Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him. We will not sit down until he comes here. Now, Samuel is trying to anoint a king. He's seen a lot of good looking guys come through here. He's pretty sure he's, uh, he's missing something. Like God's saying no to what looks to be great. I'm not going to take it easy. I'm not going to sit down. Let me see this other guy. It's got to be amazing. And he sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy. That means red. He was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. So for most of you guys here, this is the person you don't like. If you're in high school, this is the guy that you're like, really? He's good looking. He's got beautiful eyes. Oh, it's like the guy with super dark hair. He's got blue eyes and oh, and you're just stuck. He also has musical talent. He played the harp. That was their version of the guitar. He could put anything together, and as long as it had a girl's name in it, it was amazing. It was just incredible. He killed bears. He fought lions. Like, you don't beat this guy. But, but, nobody thought of him at first. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he. Are they all here? 
No, there's a shepherd. You don't want a shepherd. Even David's dad did not see what God had already decided. Imagine that. Keep that in mind as we continue today. Keep who David is before David becomes king. We've got to be careful not to make the same mistakes in our own life. Chapter, or in verse 4 rather, he says, don't be judges with evil thoughts. He's not just being mean. In their day and age, there was no middle class. There was no blue collar Christian. There was the poor and there was the wealthy. That was it. There was no middle. The closest thing to a middle would have been his brother. Jesus didn't look like a Pharisee or a Sadducee. He was much closer to the shepherd. There was no middle class. So in the context of what we've just read, when he says to them, you stand over there, you sit at my feet, that is intentional belittlement. That is demanding in the environment they're in, such as right now, that you have chosen to show yourself as less worthy, less valuable than me. What would that feel like? What would it feel like if you showed up to a gathering like this and you sat down and somebody said, hey, you've got to move. Oh, okay, okay where, where should I go? Can you sit out there behind the curtain? Oh, why? Because you look like you do. But what happens when we gather together on Sunday and you don't make it from this side of church to this side of the church to talk to one another? What decisions are you making? What choices are you choosing? James is saying, please, it cannot be. It should not be. We get people that are so aggravated because other people sit in your chair. I say this very carefully. We're Baptist church. I understand that there are rows that belong to you. You're new. You sat there. That's okay. Jesus will forgive you. If you show up next week, I'll fix it. That's absurd. The reality is in our county, right here in this county, there are churches that allow you to buy better seats. True story. There are churches in our area that will tell their people in their care a deliberate lie from Satan because they are not Christian. If you pay us more money to sit closer to the stage, you'll be blessed with greater blessings than those that come into church and sit behind you. They will go even further. They will say, if you sit up here in the front, just for an idea of what they're talking about, these first two rows are around $10,000 a seat. But their speaker, because he's not a pastor, let's be clear, when he speaks, he spits. You're blessed with holy water. You have paid to sit there. I have learned in researching this sermon that there is actually churches in the United States that have begun the process of issuing credit for their members. Imagine what that's like. This is the stuff that makes Jesus furious. This is why he made a whip and went to work and he will do it again. Guarantee it. We 
cannot do that. We have a share in the glory of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And because of that, demonstrating the religion which he desires requires action in love, propelled by faith, motivated by mercy. For that to be real, you don't buy your seat. It doesn't happen. This is awful. James is going to show us why. James 2, 5 through 7. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name which you are called? Christians, believers, followers of Jesus, the name is Jesus See how ridiculous this is in the light of who Jesus is. He saw it all the time. The the Sadducees were worse than the Pharisees. Even a cursory look at the book of Acts, you will find that the Sadducees show up all the time. They are an absolute pain. They are worse than the Pharisees and they are wealthy. They love one thing. We're going to flex our wealth and take you to court. Power and money, absolutely, that's what they're about. They don't know Jesus, they don't love Jesus. In fact, they don't believe in anything but the first five books. They don't believe in the afterlife. They truly and fully believe that they are the pinnacle of humanity. And they're going to make everybody else aware of that. They saw this all the time. They witnessed it firsthand. This is exactly what's going on. This is why we see the rich young ruler in the conversation with Jesus. He comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus says, we've got to keep the law. Oh, I've kept the law perfectly, perfectly kept the law. Imagine the proclamation that that reveals of his heart. Imagine that he has missed that he's speaking to his creator. Jesus knows He knows very clearly. So what does Jesus say? One thing, one thing you lack. How many of us would be excited if Jesus said, you just got to do one thing and it's all good? The Western American mind is like aces. Got it. Jesus just said, I'm good. Remember who you're speaking to. Go and sell your possessions and give them to the poor. And he went away sad. He valued self over souls. And he left Jesus aside. You can read the entire accounts of the Gospels. He is one of the only people in the entirety of the New Testament that walks away from Jesus without joy. Because he chose the possessions of this earth instead of treasures in heaven. He valued self over soul. That matters. James wants us to understand the example he saw. It was Jesus who allowed the unclean woman with her tears and her hair to wash his feet. That was absolutely unacceptable in society. And he did it anyway. Jesus is the one walking with a crowd, stops and says to the tiny rich guy, Hey, come down, I'm going to your house for lunch. He was a tax collector. How dare you Go to lunch with an evil, tiny tax collector. We called him the wee little man. 
You know what happened? God knew that his son would walk on this earth and God planted a tree that Zacchaeus would climb in. And that tree was there for him because Jesus would stop and he would look up and he would say, I show no partiality. None. Whether it is the woman who is unclean, whether it is the tax collector who is unwelcome, or whether it is you, self-righteous Jew, at my cross, everyone is the same. At my cross, my blood spilled covers you and you and you and you. And from there, we must look forward. We must look at what we're called to do. Now, as we move to these closing verses of this section of James 2, I want you to see a structure. I want you to see if you catch these words as you read along with us as we go. If, but, so, because. If, but, so, because. So starting in James 2, verse 8, right out of the gate. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality... You're committing sin. Can we say that? Are we allowed to say, hey, you're in sin. Stop. It doesn't mean you go up and just slug somebody. Quit being a dummy. But we go in love and say, this is sin. This sin is evident in your life. That is what he's saying. And are convicted by the law as transgressors. This is important for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. That is a reality. He's helping them understand consequences. Fulfill the royal law. Love your neighbor as yourself. Sounds familiar, right? Man, where have we heard this before? Jesus, my brother, teaching from the Old Testament, which is also his words. They are red letters. Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. James, old camel knees, deformed because of prayer, daily going before the throne of God. What do you think his prayer was? Lord, let me love you with all my heart, with all my soul and all my mind. What would it do to your life if that was a prayer that marked your day in and day out? What would it do for you if you put the priority of Jesus before the comfort of self? How incredible would it be? The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Love your neighbor as yourself. Simple but difficult. It's where the rich young ruler failed. You see, the reality was he didn't understand the assignment. One part breaks all of it. Every single human being in this place, which is all of you, are unable to fulfill the law. You may break it in different parts, but you're guilty of all of it. 
one human being did. His name was Jesus Christ. He lived a perfect life. He died a sinless death. He rose a victorious Savior, and he ascended to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God until his enemies are made his footstool. And he has said to us, my blood covers you. My blood covers you. You're with me. You're part of my family. You represent me in my glory. That is the Jesus we proclaim. That is the way we get out from under the curse of the law. Galatians would tell us that the law brings a curse, and that curse is death. Sin has a wage. That wage is death. Jesus breaks those chains and sets us free by his sacrifice. You cannot be perfect, so you do not have to try to be perfect. You have to believe in faith who Jesus said he was. Romans 10 tells us, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is the Lord, you will be saved. The law no longer applies. Mercy and grace are yours in an unlimited supply. That's there. It's yours. We want to try to prove it. We don't have to try to prove it. That's the problem. James 2, 12 and 13 so speak and so act, if but so, those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. That is the law of mercy, of grace, the law of those of us who will give an account, but we stand redeemed by Jesus Christ. Because, or if you're looking at your Bible, it may say for, because judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The law of liberty, so speak and so act. You see the structure there. He is pointing us to really what's happening in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is talking about judge with an appropriate standard. Judge with a standard you'd wish to be judged. Show mercy, you must show mercy. This is part of keeping that law. This is part of if you break one, you, you break all of it. That's real. That, that's part of the truth. I want to go back to King David. David shows us an example of someone who wanted a different standard for himself as opposed to others. David was an amazing man, an incredible king. He was home when his soldiers were at battle, mistake number one. He was out on his rooftop, God knows why, and there was a woman bathing. His eyes saw something that was not his, and he coveted that. You've become a person with evil intent, an evil judge. And he sent for her, and she came, and she was there with David. That night was over. A little while goes by. War is still taking place. The soldiers are still out, as was common at the time. And she sends a note to David. Hey, I'm pregnant. Okay, well, I'm a king. I've got a lot of wealth. I can fix this. How many of you have decided you can fix where you are and cover up the sin that you have because you don't want to deal with the actual standard? You forget that you are under mercy and grace and you decide to fear the law and fix it yourself. You don't have to. So David does what a good rich person does. 
he tries to cover it up. I'm the king. Go get her husband. Bring him back from the battlefield. Okay, great. They bring him back. Send him home. Let him have a night with his wife. That'll be awesome. Except Bathsheba's husband was a noble man. He slept at the doorsteps of David's house. Why? Because a soldier in the midst of battle defends the king. He was an honorable man. That made David mad. Because what else happens when you're trying to cover up sin and apply a law that is not the law because you have been freed by mercy? You get frustrated in your own efforts. You don't have love. I got the solution. Get him drunk. If you get him sauced, he'll surely go home to his wife. We're good. How about we look at it like we do? Let's pick another sin as a coping mechanism for the sin we're trying to cover up. Because we've forgotten that we're under mercy, that we have grace. But instead, we're going to do it our own way. That's not the faith that James is asking for. That's not the love that is compelling us. But again, Bathsheba's husband is a good man. Sleeps where he slept the night before. What in the world am I going to do? So he goes to Joab, the commander of his army, and he says, hey, go into battle, put him on the front lines, and when the enemy engages, back away and let him be killed. Man, there's nobility. There's mercy. How crushing. How, how incredible would it be? They get the report. He's dead. Go get her. I'm a marrier. I've got plenty of wives. I was fully satisfied, completely okay. I took what wasn't mine. And because I took what wasn't mine, I had to cover that up. I used my own way instead of recognizing the opportunity for mercy. And now I'm going to go ahead and bring her into my home. And we're good, all good, except God is still God. And God still has men, just as you still have brothers and sisters around you that he uses to speak into your life. From a place of mercy. The prophet shows up. And he says, King David, I want to tell you a story. And he begins to tell a story about a little innocent lamb. And a wicked, wealthy person who steals that lamb. And David is righteously outraged. He's furious. Oh, Get that man, bring him here. We will make an example. This is unfit in my kingdom. And Nathan says, the man is you. How crushing to be David in that moment. Chosen to be king when no one else saw him as kingly. Given the mercy of God to triumph in demonstrating God's power repeatedly. It wasn't David that killed Goliath, it was God through David. That's the reality of who he was. But what happened? His eyes made a decision for him. That's really where it ended. His eyes made a decision for him. So I would argue that if you were honest with yourself, you might be guilty of not showing mercy and wanting another standard just as David did. So as Micah and the band comes back up and we enter a time of reflection, I would invite you to ask God to reveal to you where you may be sinning and showing partiality. Where you may be lacking and showing mercy. Perhaps it's a spouse. Maybe it's a relationship, a friendship, a coworker. Maybe it's a person who is lost. How incredible 
a lost person that God has granted you the opportunity to interact with. He's allowed you to proclaim the glory of Christ and offer eternal hope, and instead you're acting in partiality. I can't handle the weight of trying to help their need because I'm just so burdened because I haven't done what Jesus asked me to do, which was to cast my burdens on him. I've chosen to make a decision opposite of what I've been told to do. Maybe you're here today, you don't know Jesus. You don't know his mercy. The Bible is clear. The word of God makes it evident. Your destiny is hell. But today, right now, in this moment, you have the opportunity for that to change. Jesus' arms are wide open. His mercy is unending. And he is pleading with you, don't leave here under the curse of the law. Join the law of liberty. Come under my grace. So for the rest of you, I leave you with this. James' point in this passage is that by us failing to show mercy to our fellow man, we prove ourselves to be utterly empty of any Christ-likeness. Christian means little Christ, literal copies of Jesus, his image bearers. We follow his example. Therefore, it is impossible for us to fail in sharing his compassion or to reflect his spirit of mercy to those around us, unless we're fake. Don't be fake. I love you guys. is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. Sing that again. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but